Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 115. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is cigar box master Eric Bates. I've been trying to get Eric on the show for a couple of years, but he's very busy as a performer and with his circus company, Barcode. Before we get to Eric, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. You can find out about this great group of jugglers at juggle.org. Don't forget to check out this summer's festival in South Bend, Indiana, July 17th through the 23rd. All right, now drop everything. Get ready to listen to Eric Bates. Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 115. I'm very excited. I've been trying to get this guest for quite a while. Please welcome Mr. Eric Bates. Hi, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. We've been going back and forth. You've been very busy uh, with all your endeavors. And I'm glad you finally found time to be on the Drop Everything podcast. Uh, let's start with a little bit of background. Where were you born and uh, what were you like as a kid? Yeah, so I grew up in Vermont in the U.S., in the, in the northeast of the United States. And uh, I guess I was just a, a normal kid that would run around, kind of do everything, a lot of outdoor stuff. So a lot of skiing, uh, biking in the summer, um, but mostly circus. I, I learned to juggle from Troy Wonderly uh, in a school program where he came in and replaced the gym class for a week. Uh, in elementary school. So I actually don't remember learning how to juggle, but by fifth grade, I was juggling torches. So uh, <laughs> that quickly became uh, most of my childhood and adult life. Like any background, any any family members involved in artists like the circus or, or juggling or magic, anything like that? No, my, uh, my mother's a French teacher and my dad was a computer programmer, but uh, they were both really supportive and, and loved taking us to see Circus Mercus and, and other shows in Burlington at the Flynn Theater. But uh, neither of them were performers themselves. Now, I've heard of Circus Smirkus. They have a wonderful circus program. Were you part of that as a young person, or did that not come into play? Yeah. yeah. So Circus Smirkus is a, a nonprofit that helps other nonprofits raise money around New England. And they also have a residency program in schools, and they also have a summer camp. And then they have the Big Top Touring Show, where they send an actual circus tent, maybe a 600-seat circus tent, around New England during the summer with all kids, performers under 18. So I did pretty much everything you can do with them. I did the camp. I did the show for a couple summers. I've coached at the camp. I've done some of the residency programs with people. I've seen a, a lot of smirkus throughout my time as a performer. And when you were there, uh, did you have a particular juggling instructor? Yeah, so I was taught to juggle by Troy Wonderly originally. Um, but then pretty soon I remember uh, Brent McCoy, taught me how to juggle. He's a, now a street performer with his wife, Maya McCoy. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he was a really big influence on me growing up uh, back when I was doing Diablo and balls and clubs. And we would actually do shows together when I, he was still in college and I was uh, just a, a young high school student juggler kind of trying to figure it all out. Now, I think I've worked with him. Does he do kind of a hard hat construction worker show? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. He he has a solo show called Clown at Work, and then with his wife, uh, Maya, they have the Secret Circus, His Majesty's Secret Circus. Oh, okay. I've, I've worked, yeah. I've done, I've worked with him as a solo, and I've seen him as a duo. So that's nice. So um, you were able to see a lot when you were young and sort of get a lot of experience. Were you always on this track? Did you ever think about doing something else, or were you always in the, the mode of becoming a circus performer? Yeah, so I, I had decent grades in high school and, and enjoyed learning lots of things. So I actually did go to McGill for two years right out of high school. Uh, it's a, a college up in Montreal. But part of the reason I came up here was that I had a lot of friends going to the circus school in Montreal. And I wanted to be around that circus scene still. I think it was more important to me than I let on. And then I had friends that said, you know, you don't want to manage a circus. I was there for business. They don't, you don't want to manage a circus. You want to be in the circus. Like you're still juggling. You're still doing acrobatics. You're still working out and training all the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, good point, you know. Hmm. And I, uh, I did the auditions and I got in and uh, the rest is history. Did you audition through video or is that in person? They might have auditions uh, by video now for the National Circus School in Montreal. But at the time, it was live auditions. So you would show up and there's maybe 200 people there. And every day they cut 50% of the people until they get down to the final class of, uh, of about 30. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's quite the process. I, I talk about, I've got uh, some YouTube videos out there you can look up that really talks more about the audition process and what it's like to go to the circus school. But yeah, they're, you're, the first day they just have you doing basics. They have you doing 
acrobatics and stretching and fitness and dance and improv, uh, kind of the core classes you find in the school. And then as you go further and further, it gets more specific throughout the auditions until you're showing them your, your specialty, your juggling or your wire walking or whatever it is you do. I think that's a great experience for a performer because most jugglers, they definitely focus just on being jugglers and to have background in dance and, and uh, theatricality and music and acrobatics. It definitely adds a different element, especially to your performing, because you really can see that, that I'd say that you're, you know, more than just a juggler, you're a, you're a complete performer when you do it. Was that the influence of the circus school on you? I think so. I think that's the direction contemporary circus is going more than just juggling, but uh, especially circus where we like to see people doing lots of things on stage and not just one act. You'll still usually have your main act. So for me, that's cigar boxes and Russian bar, but you'll often do group choreographies or maybe sing in a group. Not me. No one lets me sing on stage. Hmm. Right, right. But uh, yeah, and I, I think that's a, a style of show that I loved. You know, I grew up watching Traces from the Seven Fingers and Rain from Cirque Loise. Uh, which are these small ensemble pieces where you really get to see all the characters throughout and feel like you get to know them by the end of the show. And that's the type of circus that I wanted to make. And uh, the circus school uh, pushed people in that direction. Whereas I think you can perform in a cabaret or something and, and get very good or, or do uh, what you guys do uh, very well, more of a comedy juggling style. Uh, but it's not, it just doesn't lend itself to the same type of gig. And at what point did you decide to focus on cigar boxes? Because that's a, a pretty unusual choice. It's not the prop that most people decide to specialize in. What about them attracted you? Yeah, learning cigar boxes was a really conscious decision, actually. I mean, I guess I got them when I was 12. And so I right away could do most of the tricks Chris Cremo could do, you know, like the, the takeouts and not with the same flair, obviously. But mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I can learn this pretty quick. And then I was performing Diablo. That was kind of my main thing when I was 15, 16. And uh, I was doing it with Jacob Sharp. Yeah. Just amazing Diabloist. Uh, I remember we did an act the first summer we did Circus Mercus. And then the second year we did it, we came back from, you know, our various lives to, to reassemble during the summer. And he was just light years ahead hmm. of us in the Diablo. And I was like, wow, he is really riding this wave of Diablo. This is when like the Mad French Posse was just starting and three Diablos was unheard of at the time. And he was on the forefront of this. And I was like, that's so exciting. I want to do that with something like I'm never going to juggle more than 14 rings. I'm never going to technically do new things. It felt like with balls or clubs or whatever. And I was like, cigar boxes are completely untapped. It's like people have done a reverse cascade and called it a day with cigar boxes. There's just so much uncharted territory. So I was like, I, I want to specialize in this thing. I think it's really interesting. I think I love that there's so much unexplored possibilities out there. I agree completely. I think it's uh, it was very stagnant where things like the Diablo was just taking off. Mm -hmm. We had a fellow named Jeff Mason did a very nice cigar box routine, but it really what sort of stopped with like sort of Rudy Schweitzer and Chris Cremo of that mm -hmm. sort of bent over takeout style. You know, you end with the pirouettes. Have you ever tried uh, the boxes Chris Cremo used? Uh, what does he use? Do you know? I mean, I tried because he came and did a workshop for three days at the IGA. And I always wondered how he got them lined up so perfectly, like how he keeps them so looking so yeah. floating. They are so light. Huh. I was really surprised how light they were. I know they're like a homemade box, like they're not a commercially available. Interesting. But the ones I were using were probably about twice as heavy. They really felt mm. like very insubstantial. And I thought, oh, this is how he gets that really delicate touch to them. Mm. And uh, But when I worked that workshop, I realized, oh, he only does what Chris Cremo does. Like there's not a lot of other experimentation that, that's not in his act. His act is pretty much what mm. he has as far as his, his skill set with the boxes. Mm. Yeah. No, interesting. I've never used his boxes. I've always had uh, Dubai boxes. Brian has supported me from the beginning. He was actually giving me free boxes back when I was in school. And, uh, you know, I, I always want to shout out Dubai because their stuff is awesome. And, and he's such a supporter in the juggling community. But um, I find... Two light boxes, uh, I don't like as much. I feel like you do need to wait for some of the sort of inertia style tricks, I call them, where you've got like a stack and they have to all stay together. Yeah. If they're too light, it's really easy that they kind of squirrel away. Uh, but if they're too heavy, then you get tired because it's a, you know, your hands are pinching literally throughout the entire act. So there's a, a balance to be found of how heavy they are. Yeah, for me, it was always the importance of the thickness, too, because mm. I think you're, you're a tall fellow, what, you're like 6'2 or 6'3 or so? or Exactly. So you probably had some pretty big big hands? 
I do. And I think the grip is important because if you're gripping too thick, your hands get tired very quickly. And so I found that was important to get the right thickness. Yeah, I've noticed in Japan, I went over there because they're the best cigar box jugglers in the world are in Japan. I'll just say that flat out. Oh, no doubt. Especially nowadays, the, the oh, innovation has been incredible. It blows my mind. But uh, a lot of those guys use smaller boxes, actually, like the stacking boxes from Dubai are just slightly smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, and it helps them for their for their hand size and just the ability to keep more in their wingspan. Now, have you have you reached a point with the cigar boxes where you think like your act is stable and you don't add more much more to it? Or are you constantly innovating and trying to uh, improve it? Yeah, I would say from a performance standpoint, I haven't tried to put new tricks in my act uh, for quite a while. And I think that was something that kind of got in my head as a juggler that there's always this risk with juggling that it that you can drop. Um, and it's really hard to become perfect every single night. Maybe not for you, but for me, it found, <laughs> felt like a very hard goal. Uh, whereas with Russian bar, you know, we could be 100 percent every single night. And regardless of how much we trained, we could keep that level. So I've enjoyed continue to explore with boxes, but not changing my act as much. And I'm finding a lot of creativity other places, like in making a show, in, uh, in writing a book about making a show and making videos, stuff like that. I'm kind of taking enjoyment from finding creativity elsewhere more than in just juggling these days. Well, when you talk about dropping, I think you chose one of the most unforgiving props. <laughs> yeah, shaker cups and then boxes. That's, that's it. It's the worst. <laughs> yeah. And also, you're not doing comedy. So like when you, if you have a comedy act, you can drop a couple of times and, and make a, a remark about it. Sometimes it even adds to the sort of nature of the show. But performing to music, I always thought dropping was like falling and ice skating. It, it just it really disrupts the flow quite a bit. I think, yeah, I think it often does. For me, it's really the timing. If the drop happens late in the act, the audience can relax. Okay, this guy's going to be okay. He's, we're going to have fun here. I don't feel nervous for him the entire time. You know, you get one drop and it's like, oh, cool. The, those things actually aren't magneted together. He actually, there is yeah. a risk here. I think it can enhance the act. But if it happens earlier, if it happens right before, like one of those nice punches on the music, like kind of an applause point, then it's hard because the natural release from the audience usually comes on this exclamation point and instead it comes on this womp womp you know well it's also the adrenaline because you see i've seen many acts especially in the ij competitions they're doing okay until that first drop mm, yeah and then their confidence gets a little shaken and then the door is open and all of a sudden it's a, a drop fest yeah i think it's something you just as a professional juggler it's something you have to come to terms with that's gonna be part of it it's gonna happen and for me at least there wasn't a lot of predicting between if i was nervous sometimes i could use that and uh, tell myself this nervous energy is actually excited energy. That's a, something, a, a, a trick I like to try to switch that feeling in my mind. But I would have nights where there was no one there and it would go well or it would go poorly. Or I would have premiere nights where it would go great or it would go poorly. You know, after you do it for 10 years, I, I didn't find a lot of patterns more than just, you know, I, I got to a point where I'm fairly consistent and enjoy being consistent and, and trying to analyze my own mental state as it uh, relates to, to juggling and dropping, but I try to just have fun with it because I don't think there's a, at least for me, there was never a magic bullet. Uh, maybe other people are more consistent or have figured out tricks for it, but. Well, I think the only real secret is preparation. Mm. I mean, the more prepared you are, the more you can run your act flawlessly in rehearsal. Also, of course, the more experience you have in different situations, mm. like you take premieres. It's one thing when you settle into a show sometimes, mm. but some of the one-offs like the TV shows or, or the, the opening nights, can be particularly problematic, especially if you're, you're prone to sort of a nervous disposition. Yeah, I think what you're saying about uh, being in a variety of situations teaches you a lot, teaches you how to get the good lights that you like, teaches you how to build an act that might have maybe a break in the middle so that your the tiredness of your arms isn't as much a factor because you've built your act in such a way that you give yourself a, a time to relax or give your focus a chance to recover, and then you can go back in again. And I think stuff like that will really add up over the course of a career to being more consistent in general because you've just seen all these different scenarios and you've had experience like, oh, wow, I really dug myself in too deep with that long hmm. uh, set of hard tricks in a row without stopping. It was just it's just too much for my brain or for my hands to keep up with. I think sometimes people make a mistake of putting a really hard trick up front or a really hard trick at the end. I think it's always good to settle into the lighting, like with something kind of uh, you know simple in the beginning. Not simple, but like the hat or something that's more like you can get used to the situation. And sometimes all the pressure builds to the end. 
where if that last trick doesn't go successfully, that those are tough places. The beginning and the end, I find, are, are really have to be thought about as far as the construction of an act. Yeah, you want to hit your last trick. You got to yeah. hit your last trick. Come on. <laughs> no, <laughs> <I> mean, exactly. <laughs> that, maybe you get one or two tries on it, which is exciting, but you, you got to be able to catch it at the end of the day. And what do you think about building in uh, intentional mistakes? Like I've seen the Russian circus. I remember uh, it was um, Anatoly, who was Vladik's dad, and his partner would pass 10 clubs. Mm. And they would always miss twice on purpose first just to get that yeah. third you know, dramatic attempt. What do you think about uh, intentional drops? I think those are some very bold performers. I, I don't need <laughs> exactly. <do that> intentional <laughs> drops. <laughs> Me neither. I think I think it's great. Uh, like you said, the comedy act. I think it's awesome, and it's a moment where the audience is like, "Oh, this is real." You know, how's he going to react? And when you have something funny, you know, Chris Cremo with his metal, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, you guys make jokes all the time about the lights or about whatever. I think that's awesome. When it's done poorly, like Cirque du Soleil sometimes builds in intentional mistakes or. Uh, foot slips or something and as yeah. a circus artist you can see when it's on purpose and not done very hmm. discreetly and i find that um the opposite of what you want that it's not a real moment it's a it's a fake moment trying to manipulate the audience rather than uh something real that the audience gets to experience and have that benefit of live theater yeah there's not that many uh, intentional drops on the russian bar i'd imagine i mean it's <laughs> it's you're not trying to to build up the intensity of it because i find that one of the most exciting of all the circus arts, because it just seems like there's no room for error. It's such a, a small, how, how wide across is that bar? Like like four inches, five inches across or? Uh, something, yeah, about the about the width of my hand. Not not very wide. For those that don't know, the Russian bar is a an act where we hold a long skinny pole between two big guys, me and another guy, and we throw a woman uh, about 20 feet in the air and catch her back on this pole. I imagine it's important you're both about the same height. Is that accurate? We are fairly identical in terms of, of build and size, which I think helps a lot. I think with bar, since the bar itself is 14 to 17 feet long, it's not as big a deal if it's a little bit slanted one way or the other as compared to other circus disciplines where you really want to be similar heights. Uh, but for us, it worked out well because we were almost the exact same size. Let's go back to your circus school training. Uh, how long does that go for it and how many hours per day? So I did a three-year program at the circus school. Let's say I would I would say we averaged 40 hours a week, like eight-hour days. It was a lot. That, that might be wrong, but a lot of times if I had free time in the middle of the day or I would come in early to, to juggle extra or stay late to, to train. But yeah, basically how it breaks down is that you have your core classes, which is uh, you know acrobatics, flex, strength, dance, improv, acting, stuff like that, that everyone does. And then you have your specialty that you'll have the most of. So I had two hours of juggling every day. And often I would come and do a third hour with an individual coach, or maybe you'd be with three other people. Um, So you really focus on your specialty. And then you have a secondary discipline for me that was Russian bar. And everyone has this first and second disciplines and then the the general classes so that they become sort of well-rounded circus artists. And how does it work with a coach that may not necessarily know your specialty? Like you didn't work with a cigar box coach, I imagine. No, no, there's no cigar box coaches. And actually, when I've gone back to teach, it's been a great joy to be a cigar box specialist that can help other cigar box jugglers. I could just take so much of the time off their learning curve. But for a, having a coach that doesn't specialize in that, I think there's a lot to be said about thinking about structure, um, thinking about, how do you say, educatives, like um, learning exercise, basically. If you're trying to do something hard, how can we break down the steps and, and create exercises that'll let you learn the trick without actually doing the trick, and then you can put it back together in the real trick. And just sort of that mindset of structured training rather than how I think a lot of jugglers learn things, which is kind of just juggling whatever they feel like it, whenever they feel like it, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, but maybe not in a very disciplined approach and getting solid for a stage rather than just catching tricks when you know, whenever, when there, there's, you don't have to catch them on command nine times out of 10. Yeah, I think a lot of jugglers uh, train poorly in my opinion. Mm. A, lot of them, a lot of them kind of like they have that sort of I juggle till I drop philosophy. Yes. Where the drop loses its importance or they don't, you know, they'll try eight balls without even being able to do four with each hand accurately. So they don't mm. really seem to build up in a really logical steps. Obviously, you can do that without training, but I think that to have someone who's, like you say, maybe not a specialty in your particular field, but is specialized in, in how to learn and how to perfect an act, 
that could be beneficial for any juggler. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think if you're very good at juggling clubs, you're probably going to have good things to say about juggling cigar boxes just from that approach of, uh, of learning juggling and constructing an act and understanding the mindset that it takes to be good at juggling. Maybe someone that does aerial hoop wouldn't be as good a coach for a juggler, but they might have something else interesting to say. And I think that was what was nice was about being in a circus school is that you have a lot of people uh, influencing you and telling you things that people that think very similar to you might not tell you or might not give you those inspirations in the same way. So, so that was a, an unforeseen benefit, I guess. And is most of the instruction done in French or is it bilingual? How do you, how do you deal with the language issue? Yeah, so I think the school is officially in French, but they just get so many international students, both from the U.S. and from, well, and from Canada, that's not only French. So they, they just make everyone learn French and pretty much everyone's bilingual in, in Montreal. And since your mother was a French teacher, did that give you a head start? And did you already speak French when you went there? It did. I, I took four years of French in high school, and I actually lived in France for a year when I was 12. My mom uh, picked us up and moved us over there because she thought it would be fun and wanted to go before we were too old and too cool not to want to live with her in France with our mom. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a bit of a head start. I had, a, I had an ear for French. Not the accent, not the tongue, but the ear. Right, right, right. And let's talk about your transition now from circus school into performing. Do you do performing during circus school, and are there any professional engagements, or is that kind of separate from the schooling part? So at the Montreal School, it's, the focus is really on, on training, and you only perform officially with the school once a year during the evaluations at the end of the, maybe twice a year at the end of each um, semester. And then during the summer, you try to find a job as a circus artist somewhere. So we ended up working for the Seven Fingers right away in the, our first summer out of circus school. I know other schools like Fratellini, they perform once a month or something like that. And it all just depends how each school balances their curriculum because you can't do it all. You have to you have to make the choices. Is performance more important or experimentation or is technical expertise the most important thing to us, but maybe not trying as many things in front of an audience. Uh, and so the Montreal School didn't focus as much on performance, but they, they send you out with a pretty good toolkit of circus skills, that's for sure. Now, on your uh, webpage, you have a wonderful blog. And one of the posts on the blog is, the five things I wish I knew when I started my performing career. Could you sort of run those, if you remember them, could you run those down <laughs> just, just quickly? I, I don't remember them at all. Hold on, let me... Uh, okay. I, I, I know I put you on the spot. Things. How about one thing that really helped you in starting your performing career? Okay, yeah, no, I've, I've got the, the script that I wrote because that was like a, felt like a long time ago. Uh, okay, though, yeah, the first one was don't be a jerk because right. you, you just re-meet everyone in, in the circus world. Uh, the second was be interested in everything. Um, and I certainly see this now that I'm, I have, uh, I've created my own company and created my own show because all of these things that I didn't know that much about, like lighting and sound and set design, I wish I had been more curious about when I was out there on the road working for other companies because I kind of had to relearn it from scratch uh, when I hit this point in my career. Then the, the last couple are the more you do, the more you do which is basically just that the more you put yourself out there, it's, that's where you meet all these other people and connections and, and things go from one to the next. Whereas when you wait till everything's perfect, that waiting actually, in my opinion, slows you down a lot more than, than trying to do more things. And, and you just learn by throwing yourself in there. Then a point on negotiation, which is just one of those skills that don't teach you in circus school that, like many skills, like how to put a Russian bar on a plane that is really valuable to your career, it turns out. But it's not the juggling, it's not the acrobatics, it's those skills around it, those sort of business skills that you have to have. And then uh, the last one is, now that I've had a circus company, having a circus company is hard. So when you're, when you're just a freelancer and you're working for these companies, it is so easy relative to doing all the rest, in my opinion. And I've seen both sides of the coin. So to just, you know, be a, be a not a good student, but just it's a really cool position to be an artist and working for other people and bringing their visions to life and show up on time and, and have a good attitude. And it's a great life. Yeah, being a professional, right? I'll just sum it up as being a professional and showing up, doing the job, knowing what the job entails and delivering even more than people expect you to deliver. Absolutely. Yeah, if you have a good attitude and you're good at circus, it's, uh, you can make it as in this career, for sure. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot one more time on another blog post you had. Uh, it was called The Tip That Helped My Practice the Most. 
Can you give us a, some inf- inf- insight on that one? Yeah. I th- so I think uh, the main tip there was practice what you like. Is that or something like that? I, you know, I'm not sure. I, I Unfortunately, you had so much content yeah. that I kind of skimmed through it. But I think I agree that if you have passion for something, that passion will give you the, the endurance mm. and the excitement when it comes to your practice to put the time in. Yeah, exactly. So I was learning video and um, I worked with Francisco Cruz. He's the, the Seven Fingers videographer and, and former performer for them. And he's like, okay, like what kind of film do you like to watch? You know, what's your, what style of video do you, do you like watching? And I said, I love these short documentaries where you really get to know someone. You get to see them in action, see their passion and learn who they are as humans and what their struggles have been. And he was like, cool. How many of those have you tried to make? And I, I never tried to make one. And he was like, you should go make that thing because that's what you're passionate about. Uh, and it's so dumb, but it really, you know, I ran out and I, I made one the next day and it really kicked off my filmmaking career. And the same thing happened when uh, I had a friend that was getting guitar lessons and the guitar teacher told him, you know, don't focus on scales or on playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. Try to learn the style of music that you enjoy listening to because you're going to enjoy playing that more and you're going to be more likely to practice it because it'll be more satisfying and more rewarding to you. So um, I've tried to, yeah, keep the passion involved when I'm learning new things and, and let that dictate where I go when I can. Yeah, I find that in juggling, that a lot of jugglers have this idea that there are certain things good jugglers do. Like, oh, I have to learn five clubs and seven balls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I can learn five club back crosses, that'll make me a good juggler. When I think it's more important to take the path you took, which is like, what can I innovate in? What what speaks to me as a prop and what hasn't been necessarily overdone that I can excel at? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was growing up, there was Jay Gilligan and the Peapot videos. And I was like, I'm never going to do anything new with ball juggling. It <laughs> is, they have literally done everything, even things I can't think of. And now as a performer, I'm like, oh, that was so wrong. You know, everyone can juggle in their style and find their own way to do things. And I see new stuff all the time that blows my mind. So I would say, yeah, if you want to learn the vertical progress of, you know, seven, nine balls, whatever, but also don't forget that horizontal progress of exploring things in a different way, in a way that's interesting to you that you haven't seen before, or that's unique to your body or your skill set or your interests. Yeah, I always think it's surprising too when you see someone who comes out like a Wes Peden or a Tony Pezzo or these fellows who you think, well, it's already been done. Like especially with cigar boxes for so long, it seemed like, huh, there's really not that much you can do with them. Then all of a sudden there's this sort of influx of all these new ideas. You're thinking those were there all along. Mm. And what did, what did it take to discover them? And it was just sort of a mindset or I don't think anything's ever been tapped out, even though those peapot jugglers, the videos, it did seem like they basically thought of everything that could be done. Oh, that's it. I mean, all I've done for my entire career is explore cigar boxes. I didn't really have a second juggling act. And even to this day, I'm seeing new stuff come up on Instagram with these Japanese guys are just making up brand new stuff that I've <laughs> never even tried. And you're like, how is that possible that, that I explored this prop professionally for over 10 years, two hours a day, and just never discovered any of these ideas. And I think that speaks to just how many ideas are out there and, and the infinite possibilities there are in juggling. And it, it, the thing is, it's good looking stuff. I mean, sometimes I remember when we were coming up, like the European idea was, I'm going to take this prop and show you everything I ever thought of doing with it. And some of the acts tended to be very uh, hard to get through. But some of this new stuff with cigar boxes, not only is it innovative, it really looks good. Yeah, and you have to think of that. If you're a performing juggler, they're not there to see your research. And no. at least for me, I that was important to me to sorry to backtrack a little bit. What's cool is in Japan, a lot of these guys will go down one specific alley. There's the foot catch guy, or there's the guy that catches the tricks on his forehead, the, the unicorn <laughs> trick guy. And I'm like, I don't I'm not gonna do five minutes of unicorn catches, you know? I'm yeah. gonna do one and it's gonna be awesome and then I'm gonna do something completely different. That's worth thinking about if you're a performing juggler of having a, a variety of stuff to look at. And then of course I'm gonna contradict myself and say one of my favorite acts that I saw Wes Peden do, he had two rings that were kind of butterflying up and down his arms for the entire act and it was just so beautiful and satisfying and it was just one simple idea. Yeah, I remember I saw him at the European festival and everybody else is practicing all these, you know, very standard tricks. I looked over at him and he was in the corner just rolling the ring up and down his arm in different mm-hmm. ways. 
And I thought, well, that's why he's Wes Peden. Well, yeah. It's this exploration of these, these unusual ideas. And he's already done the seven club back crosses on rollerblades or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think, you, I think it's important to have the technique, uh, but technique combined with original thought is sort of where genius and true artistry arises. You have to have both, both great technique and original thought for me, uh, for it to really be a, a true artistic work of, of, of the West Peden caliber. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the, this idea of these different circus groups you, you, you were in, because you've been in some of the best uh, artistic circus companies, and maybe talk a little bit about the differences of them and what, what's, what's similar about them, because you've been with Cirque du Soleil, uh, Cirque El Roi, and the Seven Fingers. Uh, what kind of experiences are different in each one, and, and what kind of tours did you do with them? So I would say we were really lucky to work with the Seven Fingers right out of school, uh, because they really focus on, uh, what is it, inhuman performance by humans, some something like that, that basically says we want to get to know the people on stage. We don't want to cover them up with makeup. We want them to be real people and we want them doing incredible stuff. And that is just such a gift because they're looking for the directors are looking for you to understand what makes you unique, which is just such a gift as an artist to, to get to explore that. So we did three years with them on sequence eight. Uh, and then after that, we've done a lot of events. We've never done any touring shows with Cirque du Soleil. We've just done um, maybe summer shows. So maybe a month here or a month in Malta or a month in uh, Trois-Rivières or, or something like that. And those guys come in. The, the, basically, the shorter your tour, the faster the creation process. You ha- so it's all planned out more ahead of time as compared to a longer tour where you might explore a little bit more and take the time to, to find your 90-minute show a bit more. Yeah, so Cirque du Soleil is nice because they've got a lot of... Uh, they. They have the resources to, to take care of their artists really well. I'm not saying the Seven Fingers or anyone doesn't, but, you know, you're going to have great makeup and great costumes and whatever with Cirque du Soleil. But they're certainly not looking for you to be an individual like the Seven Fingers. They want you to be part of whatever fantastical world it is that they're creating, uh, which can be very fun. It's just different. And then we've done a lot of events with Cirque Loise as well. And then we've made our own show with Cirque Barcode, which is was my company, uh, my company with the rest of the members. Now, that seems the way to do it with Cirque du Soleil, because it seems like, of course, some people are with them for many, many years. And I just feel as if maybe they don't have as much artistic freedom. Like you say, they have to be kind of a, a cog in a bigger machine. I think these one-off and these sort of a shorter engagements sound like a, a perfect experience with them. That's what we always thought, certainly. Yeah, we, we'd heard stories about people that want to change their actress and then they want to put a new trick in or do whatever. And it has to go through six layers of approval before they can do it. And meanwhile, they're doing two shows a night, 12 shows a week, and, and just getting beaten down physically. That sounds really negative. I don't mean to be negative. I think it's a career that can work for some people. And for us, we were like, we don't want to put on that much makeup, and we don't want to be doing the same show that many times. So we've always been interested in doing as many different experiences as we could. So working with lots of different companies, maybe doing street show. You know, I make YouTube videos. I'm just curious to, to try everything. I'm, I'm hungry to see what this world has to offer. Well, I don't think that's negative because like when we were coming up, uh, the, the big uh, sort of venue were uh, review shows. Like I came up watching Dick Franco and Albert mm. Lucas and Chris Cremo. And that idea of doing two shows a night, you had your eight minute act. And that's what you did. That's what a professional juggler did. It just seemed very limiting. And even in that context where people are working, you know, these contracts of multiple years at these different hotels, it just seemed like you're painting one picture and then you're just having different people see that one picture. Yeah, there's something to be said for quantity leading to quality, but then there's also something to be said to trying lots of different stuff and each of those shaping your growth as an artist. Let's talk about some of these sort of uh, highlight experiences or some of the more stressful experiences like performing on television. Now we have, of course, have America's Got Talent and there's a lot of different opinions about uh, whether people want to do it or don't want to do it. I see in the notes that you did France's Got Talent. Uh, what was your experience on that show like? So we've never wanted to do America's Got Talent because we don't like their emphasis on on personal drama. And we've heard a lot of stories about performers being treated poorly. I'm not saying that's everyone's experience, but that, that was definitely what we heard to the point that we never wanted to work with them. And then we did want to work with France's Got Talent, both because they could pay their artists, but also because we heard better things about them. And we had a great time with them. The judges uh, gave nice feedback and were very positive in general. They're not all about just embarrassing people on stage, for example. Yeah, we were just treated really well, and we did three shows with them, and it was a great gig, and we got some great-looking footage from it. That's something 
TV is great for is you just get amazing looking footage. But when they tell you they don't have money and then you get there and there's like 15 LED screens and 12 cameras <laughs> and I think that's a little bit silly. All these shows that base their whole concept around artists and they don't want to pay their artists, I find a little bananas. And like you were saying, it's a lot about the personal drama. I always said it was more about the backstory than the back crosses. Like if you had some some tragedy you overcame or something something dramatic that they were more interested in that storyline. That's really interesting, actually, because I've been making videos about circus recently and wondering how can we make it connect more. And it's something that I don't think video and circus do very well. And maybe it's a lack of drama and relatable drama, especially. Whereas in a circus act on stage, that's okay that it stands alone and it works really well in that art form. But trying to just film that and assume that that's going to be interesting on video, I think doesn't work quite as well. And the TV avenue has decided to go this you know, overblown TV drama route. But I think they're not wrong about looking for a more human element that translates well on the screen. And I think it's interesting to try to do that, even though I hate how they happen to do it. Well, there was a good documentary on uh, Cirque du Soleil, the creation of one of their shows. And when you sort of went backstage and there was, a, I remember, a pair of twins that were working on an aerial act. And when you got to know the people involved in a, a sort of more naturalistic way, where it wasn't all about their drama or their tragedies, it was just more like, who are they as people? Mm -hmm. It does become more interesting. Also, sometimes when you do a show, uh, there's a certain risk. And it's a risk to your career or mm. a risk to your development as an artist. And so when people see that you're risking something by being out there, it does add that sort of more natural drama. Right. And with a video, you kind of know everything's going to work out or the ending is somehow planned, unless it's a documentary. But even then, it still has to build attention in a, in a way, either from knowing that people are knowing the stakes. You know, circus on video doesn't necessarily have because we're also used to seeing amazing stunts on video in very consumable forms. Well, the one thing you've really done well, we had another guest on, Paul McGeed from the Flying Karamazov Brothers, who talked about this idea of theatricality, that what they brought to juggling was, you know, combining it with theatricality. And when I think of your routine for the, the Seven Fingers and the, the idea of adding these, these background, not, not necessarily background, but also mm -hmm. people who are working with you, is that something a choreographer came up with or is that something you personally sort of developed? How do you get such a wonderful cohesion between you and the other performers? I mean, I have to give a lot of the credit to, to Shana Carroll and Seb Soldevilla, the directors of that show. But I would also say that I've always loved integrating other people into my acts and have done so in my own numbers before that in all the end of the year school shows and stuff because I think it's just so much more interesting to watch. You know, like... um. I don't know how to say his last name, Eric uh, Longay, Longel from uh, I know, I've AAO. seen the name. I, yeah, yeah. Um, they also do it great. It's just, there's just so many more things you can do and beautiful images you can make with the bodies and with throwing and catching boxes. And instead of having a prop stand or something, when you have these amazing circus artists that can help out with and you can have human interactions with, I just find that so interesting. And I think when I did uh, Cirque du Demain, for example, I it was really important to me, like, stand alone on the stage and... I don't know. I had some some young ego thing about that. And then after I was, I was thinking, why didn't I just do that act from sequence eight? Because that's the style of act that I love to make. And since then have pretty much only made acts uh, with other people in the show. You know, I, I've, I've embraced that about myself, that I just love working with other people in those collaborations. And I think it can be greater than just, you know, watching Eric juggle alone for five minutes. Well, I think if people want to see a great version of that, uh, it's one of, one of my favorite variety shows because it does seem like they have some wonderful acts. Plus Grand Cabaret du Monde, if I'm saying that even close to right, because uh, you have a that you do that performance there, and I thought it went wonderfully. But what's the experience of working like that on that show? Well, I gotta tell you, that was stressful because I did Search of Demand the day before. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then I did that TV show, you know, one of the biggest TV shows in France at the time. They've since closed down, but I did it back to back, and actually that one felt less stressful compared to Cirque du Demain, which is you're alone on this stage and I'd never done this Cirque du Demain act before. So when I showed up to the, the Plus Grand Cabaret, it was a show I'd done in maybe 100 shows of the Seven Fingers already. And you also film a take in the afternoon that they can use in case you drop or something. So you know you've got one in the bag. Nice. Yeah. But what's funny about it is that the space itself, you know, it's a TV studio, so it's not actually enormous. They've got mirrors all over the place, but there's maybe eight tables. 
it really oh. looks like this majestic <laughs> place, but it's a, a tiny little TV studio. Yeah, that you know, it's just really fun, and I'm just so glad that we captured that on camera. And like I said, TV shows have the best footage, so I get that memory saved forever. Now you've done some uh, other circus competitions. How important is that to your career, and how important is, is sort of winning or getting an award in your overall career arc? You think? I think those sorts of things are more important before you do them, which sounds funny, but you make a really big deal out of them and then you do them. It's just another show kind of. There are places that certainly hire you or hire people that have done festivals. They kind of select based on who's done these festivals. And it's something you can put on your CV and something you can use to negotiate with probably. I don't know that any one thing is great for your career. I guess I know people that have gone back and, and done festivals again or done new festivals to give kind of a boost to their career and just show people that they're still out there and still active. Because if you're on a cruise ship or if you're in some contract for four years, people kind of forget about you if you're not visible on social media or at one of these places that people look uh, like a festival. So it's good for the experience and things feel less stressful after you've done something stressful like that. But uh, in general, I don't do circus to compete with people. And I certainly don't do it to compete with other people of different disciplines. <laughs> it, right, right. It's just, it, it seems silly, but uh, you know, it's a way to showcase something that you've worked really hard at. And I think that's a great attitude to have when you go into one of these competition like settings. And also the judging can be kind of strange. It's nice when the audience judges it, like you won the uh, audience choice at the D Dundas street festival. Is that in Australia? Is that Dundas is in Quebec City. Yeah, we've won, oh, we won the Audience <laughs> Choice Award with the Russian Bar at, uh, at Paris and a few other places. And that's always super satisfying because, you know, that was the people that you were performing for voting for you at the end of the day. And what about street festivals? Do you find them like a refreshing change or are they, are they cha more challenging than the indoor work? How do you like uh, those compared to your regular type of performances? I love street. I'm actually uh, committing to doing street this summer for the first time for a full season. And I say that because... It's just so refreshing. You're telling jokes. You can see the audience. There's no separation uh, between the stage and the audience. There's no lights in your face. And yeah, we made a street show last summer for the La Strada Fest in, uh, in Graz, Austria with Barcode. And we had people following us around, coming to every single one of our shows. And that was just really refreshing uh, to know something that we made touch people and, and people were excited about. What I would say is different from a theater is that in a theater, people come into your world. So there's that suspension of disbelief and you can you can get away with a lot of stuff that you can't on the street because on the street, you know, there's a guy drinking a coffee right there. There's some dude yelling. There's someone playing bagpipes. There's people eating pizza. You're really in their world. And so you have to understand that and play by those rules in order to hook people, because if you're too out there at first, it can be polarizing or alienating. And I, I think it's important to to understand that you're on the same level as the, the people out on the street there. Maybe there's a power dynamic, but you still have to recognize your circumstances. And those are some of the most magical moments when you, you off the cuff observe things and observe these truths that are happening live uh, on the street. And how do you handle the safety concerns? Because I imagine doing the Russian bar in some of these street festivals that there would be less safety precautions than in a theater. Do you have to travel with your own mats? And, and what do you have to sort of ensure the safety of the performers? Yeah, we don't use mats when we perform the Russian bar generally, but we are always concerned about safety and anything that makes it into onto the stage has made it through practicing with safety lines, eventually taking the safety lines off, but with spotters and with mats and then taking away the spotters and then taking away the mats and putting all of them back whenever needed to, to make sure that we can do that trick safely 100% of the time because someone's life is at risk. And so when we're out on the street, you know, you've got maybe the sun in your eyes, you've got maybe... Uh, wind, you've got maybe uneven ground, cobblestones or, mm -hmm. or a hill. And so for sure, we're going to take all those things into consideration and reduce our technique accordingly. Because even if we just do a backflip, that is so much more than people usually get to see when they're just walking around looking for a smoothie. So <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we, we always just prioritize safety. And the key isn't doing the craziest trick of all. And in fact, people don't always uh, won't always stay for just an entire normal circus act. But if you're connecting with them and then making them laugh and then building up a trick, then sometimes that's the best way to, to ensure that they have a good time. I know if I was uh, doing a juggling act at a street festival and someone else was doing the Russian bar act, I'd be like, wow, 
boy, they're, they're, what they're doing is so much bigger, <laughs> so much more exciting that whatever I could do with torches or I'm on the giraffe or the rollabola. Because, you know, sometimes when you, when you see a big crowd of people around uh, an act, it's hard to see what's going on. But I imagine when you see someone flipping above them and being held above the, the level of the crowd's heads, that on the street, it's uh, super effective. Yeah, that's one of the keys to street performing is your crowd can only be as big as the people in the back can see. So you often see people getting up high on a roll bola on a, a unicycle, like you said, near the end of their show to make sure that their crowd can keep growing. Um, and Russian Bar for us was just inherently that thing. We already had it. It was already the most yeah. spectacular, dangerous thing that we did. So it was only natural to to have that as part of our act and in the beginning to build the crowd and then at the end to... Uh, like you said, to, to have as a grand finale and a, a big thing that everyone could see. I mean, you're having a great career and you're doing all these different jobs, but it also seems to me that it's important to help others along the way. I see that you have on your website a free ebook, how people can get more gigs. What led you to kind of want to do that? And, and what are some of these tips for people to get more gigs? Yeah, I think I've been lucky to always have people supporting me throughout my career. Like I, I mentioned uh, Brent McCoy again, who was one of my first coaches and a, a big mentor throughout my career. And I've always just loved that idea of, of giving back and help pave the way behind me, kind of. So I've been doing a YouTube channel and a, a blog and just talking about my experiences for anyone that wants to learn. And then that, uh, that free ebook had, just has some quick tips. You know, you can go download on ericbates.com. It talks about just sort of the, the categories of shows that are out there as one way to think about it. So you can think about uh, seasonal work in the summer versus winter cabarets. They're sort of different markets, but that are consistent year after year. So you can know to go looking for those in advance. And then also uh, the book talk, the ebook talks about online marketing, you know, how to deal with promotional media, how to network, how to create opportunities for yourself if you don't have people writing you already. So yeah, there's just some, some good info in there. And then actually, I'm working with um, Tom Wall. Maybe you know him. He's a juggler. Oh, yeah, but very, very well. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he's got a publishing company called Modern Vaudeville Press. And we're putting out a book together this July about how to make a circus show. So if you're interested in um, making your own show like I did with Barcode, with uh, Sweat Ink and with Brahanche, uh, that'll be available this summer. So that's been one more way I can I can pave the way and take some of those obstacles out of the way for people that want to make good art, but uh, don't know how to do it at all, just like us five years ago. And all, of all the 20 people I interviewed, they all said the same thing. It was all the school of hard knocks, and they almost lost a lot of money or a lot of friends or both. And I was like, this, this can't be it. We have to make this easier for people so that they can get the stuff out there that they want to make. Well, my hat's off to people like you and Tom who – and also like my friend Niels Dunker, who they look at juggling as just one aspect of how they can kind of have a career in the arts and not just limit it to like, I'm a juggler, but have gone on to publish books or create other props or do instructional videos. Because I think that's really important that uh, not only do we have our own careers, but that we sort of pave the way and give back to others because it is a very niche activity especially being a juggler or a circus artist, it's not something for everybody. And I think it's important that we all kind of band together in a way. Just like you're doing with this podcast and 115 episodes, that's that's a real commitment. Well, for me, it's wonderful because first of all, I get to meet people who I haven't met, like we've never met before, mm -hmm. whose work I admire. Looking at your stuff, I see you being very thoughtful, that you're a person who has uh, written blogs on the books you read every year and on your travels and on your different experiences. And one I thought was very interesting was your performance at the G7 Summit, because that's where the, the world leaders, like the, the top seven leaders all get together. And I, what, what brought the pack this idea that they were gonna have a, a circus performance? Yeah, so they were hosting G7 in Charlevoix in, in Quebec here. And so I think naturally Trudeau or whoever was organizing it said, we have to have Cirque du Soleil in there. And we got the call from Cirque du Soleil, hey, can you guys come perform at G7? And of course we said yes. Uh, and we, uh, we drove up into the woods. And as we get closer and closer, it's really out in the middle of nowhere. We just start seeing these fences, you know, these like 10 foot high metal fences for miles. And we're just like, something big is going down. And, uh, and we get there and basically we find out that the stage is gonna be this tiny little outdoor patio with a fire pit and just seven benches for the world leaders and their significant others and us. 
and two lights and snipers on the roof. <laughs> wow, that's that's really intense, right? That's a that's a once in a lifetime kind of experience. Yeah, we were literally performing with guns to our head there. So uh, that was that was pretty magical. And just the worst conditions we'd ever been in, too. It was at night with these two lights and we couldn't see anything. And, you know, at one point we went sideways and we were just so afraid we were going to get shot because we were going to mm. come too close to the, the world leaders. Now, you do a lot of traveling. And one thing that really fascinates me, the place I've never been, is India. Now, you had a very extensive trip in India. Did you do that by motorcycle? How did you travel across India? Yeah, so again, we had a gig with Cirque du Soleil that brought us over there for a $70 million wedding. Wow. Uh, one of the richest men in India, his son was getting married, and so he threw this big seven-day party. I think it was Little Wayne or Little Bow Wow or something performed <laughs> the day after Cirque du Soleil just to okay. give a, a sense of the scale. And so they built this whole place in one day, they, or not a day, maybe four days, a week. Certainly there was nothing there, and by the time we performed a week later, there was an entire stage and pavilion with chefs from around the world and flowers flown in from Germany. They made this giant bear, and then, of course, the, the Cirque du Soleil custom show that we made. And, uh, yeah, you can, you can see that whole journey on my blog on, on beautifulproblems.org. But after that, we said one of the perks of being a circus artist is you get this plane ticket to these amazing places, and once you're there, why not – uh, take advantage and, and explore and stay a while. And so we cleared our schedule for the next month or we didn't book anything knowing we had that gig. And uh, Tristan and I backpacked around taking tuk-tuks and motorcycles and boats and trains and sleeping on sleeper trains and on overnight buses where they throw you in with a stranger in your night bed and stuff. It was really wild. Uh, it was just so great. India is like a uh, a room in the house of the world that you never knew existed. And you open it and you're like, this has been here the whole time, this completely different way of living that's beautiful and, and sad and incredible and just opens your eyes. Yeah, it was, it was an experience. And what a great way to sum up travel, uh, beautiful problems. Yes. How'd you come up with that name for the blog? Yeah, I guess two things is I, I really, I'm a big climber. I'm a big rock climber. They're called boulder problems, these uh, physical problems puzzles you have to solve to in order to, to climb certain routes. Uh, and then I also play chess, and those are also called puzzles or, or problems. And the whole fun is, is figuring out these challenging, interesting situations and, and coming at it with that perspective that things that are difficult or things that are confusing can also be really interesting and beautiful. And there's a fun to that and a, a way to take pleasure out of life if, if you look at life like that as problems being a good thing and uh, an interesting thing. So that's how I came up with the name of the blog and have tried to keep that mentality throughout my career and, and in my life. I wish I had taken that approach more during my career because many times uh, we'd be flown somewhere and my, my thought was, how can I get home as quickly as possible? <laughs> which was, which was which looking back, back on it, I realized was a, a waste of a wonderful opportunity to experience more. Yeah, sometimes you're just, on the side of the road in France or something it, next to a highway. It could be anywhere is my point. It's right. not, they're not all beautiful problems. Sometimes no. they're just problems. Sometimes you're in Orlando thinking, how can I get out of here as quick as possible? Right, right, right. But what's been interesting is traveling again as an adult with my own circus show. Cause I've been able to go back to these places and now I'll, I'll rent a car or something and go into the mountains right next to these same cities that I toured when I was younger. And I'm like, wow, look at all this that was just off the beaten path, just around the corner, if I took a little bit more effort to go exploring. And that's been really exciting to, to re-see a lot of the same places from an older perspective. And what does the philosophy of live deliberately mean to you? Yeah, I think it's about making choices. Because um... that's something you see sort of, so it looks like a theme that kind of comes to mind and it's something you have in your blog, this idea of living deliberately is that just like you're saying, like take, take advantage of these opportunities and do this travel? Yeah, I think it's ideally living a life of reflection where you, you think about what you want and what's important to you and, and where you want to be and where you want to go and, uh, and the type of person that you want to be and, and surround yourself with and taking action in order to ensure those things. And uh ideally lead a fulfilling life by living up to those standards you set for yourself uh, rather than going with what's easy necessarily or what everyone else is doing. Uh, yeah, reflecting on it and, and choosing deliberately how you want to spend the time that you have.
One thing you seem to have done recently as a kind of an experiment was to uh, quit drinking for an entire year. Was this something you thought you had to do or you just did it to kind of see what that experience was like? Yeah, I, I really go into it in the blog, but um, it's very easy to drink often as a young person, I guess, but certainly on tour, it's always a premiere night where they're giving out champagne or it's always a Saturday or it's always a day off or it's always uh, someone's birthday or th there's always an excuse, uh, it turns out. And it got to the point where I, I didn't feel like I was an alcoholic, certainly, or, or in danger of uh, hurting myself or others or, or my health. But I did feel like it was becoming a habit that I was not deliberately becoming someone that drank pretty regularly. And I had taken breaks before, maybe a month off, uh, like many people do, dry January or pregnant women for nine months or more than a year usually. But I wanted to do it for myself. And uh, one month turned into six months. And by the time I hit the six month mark, I was like, I think I'm going to do a year and just try to pay attention to how it makes me feel and how it changes my life. And then I, I just sort of documented that journey and my thoughts behind it on the blog and what that meant to me. Yeah, we've just scratched the surface of all the wonderful articles and writing and photography you have on your, your blog. So I definitely recommend people go to ericbates.com to see all this experience you're sharing with people in the different formats. We're getting towards the end of our time. So let's, let's end with this formation of your, your circus company and the, and the shows, uh, this Sweat and Ink and Branché and um, what what sort of drove you to create your own company I, with all the, the the problems and the more complications and these things? Was this a natural evolution for you? And and where are you going next? Yeah, what drove us was probably naivete <laughs> in that I don't really think we knew what we were getting into when we made the company at the time. But it had been quite a few years since we'd worked with the Seven Fingers and done that uh, long run of the show sequence eight. And we'd just done so many creations for different com companies. And it was feeling like we were just remaking our act to a new techno song over and over uh, for some bank's holiday party. And it wasn't fulfilling. And it wasn't the reason that we got into circus. You know, we fell in love with circus because we fell in love with seeing circus shows. And those are what touched us. And we were like, okay, it's time for us to take on a new challenge here, a new beautiful problem and make a show. And to do that, we decided to make a company which is not necessary, but it's the route that we wanted to take. And so we made Sweat and Ink, and we toured it for three years. Kind of, you know, pandemic math makes it hard, but three or four years. Yeah, and then we made a second show, Branché, that was about the environmental crisis, a reaction to that in collaboration with the group Acting for Climate. And it was a really interesting experience making shows and, and suddenly having control over all of these different aspects and learning how much more goes into a performance and a, a theatrical show than just the the acting, just what you're doing on stage, how the lights and the costumes and the music design and, and everything goes into it. And also being able to tour a show, you have to think of those logistics and that also influences what ends up on stage. So yeah, it was a really, really good learning experience and, and growth experience. And who are the members of your show and, and what are their specialties? Yeah, so it was the same members that have always been part of Barcode. So that was uh, me doing cigar boxes and Russian bar. It was Tristan, who's a hand-to-hand -hand porter and also Russian bar porter. Uh, Tristan Nielsen. Uh, Alex Roy, who does aerial hoop and is our Russian bar flyer. So we've been working together since school, since 2009. Um, and then Eve Bigel, who is this amazing hand-to-hand -hand flyer from France. She was a so she did a mini teeterboard in hand-to-hand -hand and worked with the group XY uh, for quite a long time. And she started working with Tristan doing hand-to-hand, -hand, and then we made a show with the four of us. Um, and then since then, we've had replacements due to injuries, due to babies, due to you know life happening. Uh, but that was the core four, along with Sophie Picard, who was our uh, CEO, basically, our uh, our administrator and uh, general manager. And what are your plans for the rest of uh, 2023? Is there somewhere people come see you? Are you on tour? What does the rest of the year look like for you? Yeah, so right now I've got my book, The Contemporary Circus Handbook, coming out with Modern Vaudeville Press in July, which is really exciting. And then I'm trying to spend more time here this year, actually, uh, here meaning Montreal. So I'll be doing some street performing up in Quebec City, and I'm doing a lot of filmmaking, doing some, uh, some documentaries, some artistic stuff, and uh, just exploring that 
new type of creativity. I started getting into it during the pandemic and I'm loving uh, this new way to tell stories and, and new vantage points and being able to do things that you can't do when you're limited by a stage. So I've been exploring that a lot more. So uh, Montreal will be the place to find me in uh, 2023. Well, I look forward to seeing what you do. I, like I said in the beginning, I'm a big fan of your work. You know, I've always loved cigar boxes. And when I saw you, I thought, wow, this is uh, another level. And um, I Im- immediately appreciated it. And I appreciate you taking time to be on the Drop Everything podcast. I'm glad we finally got a chance to connect. Thanks so much. It's, uh, I have to tell you before I go that uh, I was inspired by your flaming cactus on the cigar boxes uh, to, to do my own version <laughs> with a, a, sh- oh, good. a chandelier and then a bucket of popcorn later. So that was a, a direct inspiration from uh, from you back in the day. So it's so nice to get to reconnect and have this conversation with you. Yeah, and I found that like when I would do my shows, I would have a volunteer like hold a basket and then knock the boxes one at a time into the basket. Yes, yeah. And that added a nice element. So if you're more than welcome now that I've retired from performing to, to if you want to add that to your to your chandelier and the, of course that, that trick is not mine. Uh, you know, I didn't come up with the stack, the knockout of the stack, but I think everything you do, you should figure out your own little variation and certainly adding a flaming cactus was was mine <laughs> so good it makes the trick so much more interesting there's a, there's stakes all of a sudden yeah and anyway, what's more dangerous than a flaming cactus <laughs> probably the only thing more dangerous is trying to have a career in the circus and you've done that admirably and uh, i look forward to many more years of success for you and hopefully one day we'll be in the same place and we'll be able to meet each other in person thanks what an honor to, to have you have me on here thanks so much dan thanks for our special guest Mr. Eric Bates. Thanks, Eric. Take care. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 115, my conversation with Eric Bates. This is Dan Holzman thanking the IJA for their sponsorship. You can thank them too by going to juggle.org and checking out this summer's festival in South Bend, Indiana. All right, go out into the world. Drop everything, except when you're juggling.